If you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And uh, we're going to be in verses 29 through 30. Last week, we worked through this incredible reality, this incredible truth that God is working or God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are calling to his purpose. That was verse 28. If you missed uh, last, last week's message, you can go to redemptionaz.com and, uh, and listen to what Tim taught last week. And, and it was, I, I think, just an incredible moment for us as a church. It was a, um, just, it, it, that's an inspiring and comforting truth. We great conversation afterwards, the emails this week, all the stuff that's coming in. Um, and, 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 and it was really good. But I, I have a question ab- about it. And, and maybe it's a question that you have too. You just don't feel like you have the freedom to ask it. But the question I have is this. How can you be so sure? How can the Apostle Paul write verse 28 and be so sure of it? I mean, I mean last week Tim talked about some things, some really hard things that have happened in our, in our family, in our church body, e- even the beginning of this, this year. And yet, verse 28 says, all things are working good. Well, how can you be so sure? The section of scripture we're going to look at this morning explains verse 28. Because I think without this passage, without these, these verses, verse 28 is just wishful thinking. Paul anchors the truth that we see in verse 28 in the depth of God's love for us. And it's good that he explains it like he does. Because if we thought about God's love the way that we think that God should love us, it would be way too small. And so Paul works through um, these five words I'm going to read in just a moment to show just how much God loves us. So Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and the scripture will be up on the screen there for you as well. We'll start in verse 28. Uh, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, now verse 29, for those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray, and uh, and we'll work through this together. Father God, thank you for this morning so far, and God, I thank you for the truth that we've already sung about you, God, that you never fail. God, your purposes are perfect. God, they're not thwarted by our struggle or failure or sin. God, um, I just thank you for how you're always working. God, I pray that you would be working this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just cover me. I pray that you would control me. I pray that you would protect uh, my heart in this moment. God, I pray that you would illuminate the scripture. God, I pray that you would bring it to life. God, that we would see um, just another facet of who you are and God, thereby that our affection for you would be stirred. God, I pray that because of our time together in your word, um, God, we would leave this place as people who are on mission for you and God, people who are just so in love with you that our lives are lives of worship. So God, thank you for this moment that you give us. God, thank you for your mercy and grace in our life. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to work through five words this morning, Uh, just real simple, go through this text. The first word is the word foreknow. We see that in verse 29. What does the word foreknew mean? In its simplest form, the word means to know something before it happens. But God's foreknowledge is much more than that. Human foreknowledge is the ability to know what's going to happen before it happens because it's always happened that way before. 
So therefore, you're pretty sure it's going to happen again. So for instance, I know tomorrow the sun is going to rise because I've seen it happen time and time and time again. But God's foreknowledge is much different than that. God's foreknowledge is his divine ability to know what's going to happen before it happens because he intends to make it happen. It's more than just mere foresight or awareness or mental cognition. We see this in our own life, at least I see this in my own life, in a very limited way. So I make a lot of declarations at my house. I like to just kind of announce things that I'm going to do. No one listens to it, but I do it nonetheless. And on Sundays, after a full morning here, um, when I go home, I make a declaration that I'm going to kick off my shoes. I'm going to sit on the couch. I would appreciate someone bringing me a sandwich, and I'm going to fall asleep to, uh, to the sounds of golf in the background. But there are severe limits to my foreknowledge, namely a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a certain 10-month-old that intervene to interrupt my limited foreknowledge. But God's not like that. God's foreknowledge doesn't simply mean that he looks down the corridor of time and and he looks in the future and he sees what's going to happen. That is true, but it's much deeper than that. God knows what's going to happen because he is sovereign over all. He reigns over all creation. He knows what's going to happen because he either directly causes it or he gives his permission for it to happen. So every event in the universe falls under these two categories, either directly caused or divinely permitted. So what does this mean for us? What what does this have to do with us? The word know, especially in the Old Testament, it has the idea of knowing intimately or to know with great affection or in a loving way. So in the book of Genesis, it tells us that Adam knew Eve. He didn't just simply know who she was or know that she was around or anything like that. He knew her in the deepest, most loving, personal, and intimate way. In the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 2, God says to Israel, to his people, he says, you alone have I known over all the families of the earth. And it doesn't mean that God is unaware of other peoples on the planet. It means that he knows Israel in an affectionate, loving, and purposeful sense. In fact, in the NIV, it translates that same phrase as, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. So in this context, to know is to choose. And when we apply this to our salvation, to say that God foreknew you, it means that God foreloved you. He not only knew you before you were born, he loved you before you were born, and the Bible is telling us that in eternity past, God chose you. Not the way that you're chosen randomly for some kind of mass mailing thing that lands at your house, but but he chose you by setting his heart on you. He set his love on you in advance. Before the world was created, he not only knew that he was going to create you, but he knew that he was going to love you. And he loved you before you loved him. And he could see that you would not love him first, but your hard heart did not stop him from loving you. And he chose you before you chose him. He sought you before you sought him. He found you before you found him. That's how God has loved us. And love doesn't begin with us either. It begins with God. Even before Christ came, he knew you and he loved you. His choice to love us is not based on what we've done or what we will do. It's based on the heart of God and his desire to show love to those he has created. One author writes about this like this. He says, God was not stuck with us. He chose us. He did not have to make do with the likes of us. He chose us. Therefore, your place in God's love is secured not by what you've done for him, but by his own infinite capacity to love sin-infested, God-hating foot-dragging sinners. Sometimes we think about this doctrine like the same way that we think about being picked or dodgeball in, in gym class. Sorry to bring up bad memory for some of you. 
But we look at this and we say, well, of course, of course God picked me. I mean, look at the, the wealth or the ability or the talent or the power, the influence that I have. Look at the platform that I have with people. In fact, there are some people, you know, they talk to me about friends of theirs that are not followers of Jesus, believers. They're like, man, if God would just save them, imagine the impact that they would make for the kingdom. But when I look through this book and when I look through scripture, God did not pick all the winners. He's notorious for picking people that nobody else would ever pick. And the fact is that God doesn't need us, which is what I believe makes this doctrine even more humbling. So he foreknew us, and then secondly, Paul says that he predestined us. So this is a word that scares a lot of people, but it shouldn't scare us. In fact, I love that this word is in the Bible. I'm glad that this doctrine is in the Bible because it actually liberates us. It brings a lot of freedom to us. To predestine means to determine a destination beforehand. It means to decide beforehand where you're going to go. In, in about a week, I'm getting on a plane with some other people from Redemption, ultimately heading to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Now, if I get on the plane and I hear the pilot say, oh, good morning, folks. I'm just going to spin a little wheel up here, and wherever the wheel lands, that's where we're going to end up. I would be the first person off of that plane. Or if the pilot came across and he said, you know what? I've always wanted to go see Sheboygan. Today, I choose Sheboygan. So that's where we're all going, Right? If God had left our destiny up to us alone, what would we do with it? Look, look at us. Look at what we, the way we live. Look at what we do to our bodies. Look at what we do with our time and our money, our opportunity in life. You, you cannot look back at human history or even this past week and, and say that, man, people in general live with such a sense of destiny and greatness. Our culture minimizes us, but God doesn't. God dignifies us. He paints a new picture of our future, and the picture is glorious. This past week, or actually a week ago or so, I met with one of the founders of Win Souls for God, which is the organization that we're going to see in Ethiopia, and he was just kind of talking through what to expect there and what to get your heart ready for and what to get your mind ready for as you go and kind of talking through even his experience of starting this organization and, and, and all of that. And he was telling me a story about a boy that they found living in a, in a dumpster, living in trash. And I don't mean like in a, in a figurative way, like he had a really messy apartment. He literally lived in a pile of trash and was eating trash. And this pile of trash, it was located in one of the busiest sections of the city, right in their kind of open marketplace. And he said thousands and thousands and thousands of people walked by this boy every day and no one paid any attention to him. No one gave any thought to him. Because they thought, well, of course he's in the trash, because he is trash. And so this organization didn't come by and they said, Jesus doesn't think you're trash. And they scoop him up out of there, give him a place to live, give him food, give him shelter, give him clothes, give him a name. It's what God has done with us, because God doesn't see us as trash. He has a purpose for you, He has a purpose that's magnificent. It's a destiny that we will one day be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. God is determined. God is determined that one day you will look like Jesus. In, in, the, in the simplest terms, God determined that those he has chosen to spo show special mercy to would be people he would transform into Christ-likeness. So foreknowledge is the choice of persons. Predestination is what that person is chosen for. So even though we fail and even though we struggle, we don't despair. If I believed that this whole thing was up to me, I would have quit a long time ago. 
That's why I love this doctrine of the sovereignty of God, because I don't have to despair. There's a tremendous freedom in it. Because there are days where I feel like, man, I have completely messed this whole thing up. I am so far off track. But this truth here, this scripture especially, reminds me that God has taken a personal responsibility to see that one day I'll look like Jesus. So I live life, and even in the midst of failure and struggle, I have an expectancy that God is able to do what he has set out to do in me because he loved me enough to unite my destiny with the glory of his own son. It's already decided. As a believer, a follower of Jesus, God set my destiny in three ways. God has predestined me in three ways. The the first way, I'm predestined to be in heaven. I'm predestined eternally to be with him forever. I'm also predestined to be like Jesus when I get there. And then lastly, I'm predestined to be a part of God's great eternal family over which Jesus reigns as the exalted head. So in this scripture here, it talks about Jesus being this brother. When we finally look at Jesus in that day, he will be exalted as the firstborn among many brethren, and we, as his brothers and sisters, we will forever praise and worship him as the exalted head of the redeemed family of the people of God. And until that day, God is shaping us all by what happens to us into the image of Jesus. So we foreknew, predestined, and then called Paul says we're called. Another way that God shows his love towards us is that he gets involved in our subjectivity. He didn't hold out until we called him. He called us. And and this happens at our conversion. The spirit of God convinces us of our sin and of our misery. And he enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ and enables us to embrace Jesus as he is freely offered in in the gospel. Listen to to Ephesians 2, a letter that Paul wrote again. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, whose spirit is now in work in those who are disobedient. Verse 3, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you've been saved. The Bible tells us that we weren't just bad. We weren't just lawbreakers. We weren't just rebellious. We were dead. And God made us alive. This is the effectual call of God. God brings us to life spiritually so that we can believe. And maybe for you and your story, it all happened in a moment, or, or, or maybe perhaps it was this slow-growing process of realization. Maybe that's you even here today. You're kind of in this slow process of, of growing in realization of who God is and who Jesus Christ is. But God gave you the gift of faith and the gift of repentance, and you were able to engage with God because he loved you enough to wake you up. You call out to him because he called you first. And we were there just kind of mining our own rebellion and our own inflated view of ourselves. And he intervenes and he invites and he walks into our life and he reveals himself to our heart through the gospel and everything changes. This is how God loves his people. If you're here and you're listening to all this and you're kind of trying to track with this and you're reading this verse, you say, man, this is a real bummer because God hasn't done that for me. I must have missed my chance. If you're here and you're thinking that, that's good, because it could be God stirring in your heart. 
People who are not yet believers that get hung up in this doctrine are asking the wrong question. The question is not, am I chosen? The question is, do you believe? Because that's the question that Jesus asks. And that's the only question that really matters. Do you believe? If this is you here today by your own admission, by your own proclamation, you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a, you're not a believer. If this is you today, your problem is not that God has left you out. Your problem is that you have left God out. But here's what you got to know. That God is still pursuing. God is still loving. L- listen to what God says in Revelation 22:17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come, let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. John 6, 37, all those the Father gives me, this is Jesus talking, gives me, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away, or I will never cast out. If you feel like right now your heart is kind of taking evasive action for this, but at the same time there's a desire for Jesus or a want for Jesus, you can't even explain it, tell him tell him. Say, I don't have a heart to call out to you. I know that I need you to want you. So break through this barrier and and help me. And the answer to that prayer is one of, if not the most sweetest moments of of your life. That's the whole reason why all of this is here. This is not just for us to kind of put on a show or to occupy a few hours on, on Sunday. This is so that we would be reminded of this truth. This is so that people who are far from Christ would be drawn to life and have new life in Christ This is for the people who are followers of Jesus that we would be reminded and that we would celebrate. And then when we live here, we would live those lives of celebration and worship out there so that those who do not yet know Jesus might know Jesus. And if if someone here invited you today, you're not a believer. If someone here invited you, you, you might think it's just because they want to have lunch with you, but you need to know they tricked you. They brought you here because they want you to experience the joy and the life and the freedom and the mercy and the love of God through Christ. Heard, seen, displayed, made known through the gospel. I want you to experience how much God loves you. We're called and then we're justified. Justified, we've actually spent quite a bit of time in the book of Romans on this word. We go through it again. I love that we go through it again. Justify means to declare righteous. God declared you righteous the moment you trust Christ, even though you're still a sinner, on the basis of the death of Christ. Because of your faith in Christ, which is a gift from God, the righteousness of Christ is credited to your account in heaven while you're still a sinner. You see, the people that God loves have one thing universally in common— They're all sinners, but God can't get involved with us without forgiving us. God loves us too much to take our failure as the final word. There's a pastor named Ray Orland. He says, God repositions us from under his wrath to under his smile through the cross. At the cross, Christ took on every true accusation about us. Everything that was true about us, our failures, our rebellion, All of that was placed on Christ. And he purchased for us the righteousness of the sinless Savior. God gives us in Jesus a a weapon against the accusing voice of Satan because God is no longer our accuser. It's settled forever on the cross. After justification, Paul says, glorified. What does it mean to be glorified? 
It means to be clothed with the glory that God himself has. All that heaven has is given to you when you are glorified. So glorification is the future for God's children, for those who are followers of Jesus, when we are ultimately reunited with him in heaven. It hasn't happened yet, but you need to notice the, the tense of all these verbs in these two verses because they're all past tense, for new, predestined, called, justified, glorified. They're all in the past tense. So how can glorified be in the past tense when glorification is in the future? How can God speak of our future glorification in the past tense if it hasn't even happened yet? It is so certain that God speaks of it as past tense, even though it is still future for us. The promise is so sure that it's as good as done. It's kind of like right after the Super Bowl when you're, when you're watching a team and, and right away they're putting on the, the hats or the shirts that say champions, right? Well, what, did they got like a printing press or something in the, in the back in the locker room? I mean, how do, how do they do that? They don't, they don't have a screen printer that up in the locker room, but somebody was so certain of that team's victory that even though it was in the future, they treated it as though it was in the past and printed those shirts because they were so sure of the victory. God is so certain of your glorification, he speaks of it as if it had already hoped happened. Now, one of my friends reminded me at the, at the 8 o'clock that um, this doctrine can get kind of twisted into an improper or wrong doctrine and say, well, there, there's the thing. I mean, God probably just prints 32 shirts and then he just chooses whatever the, the best option is. There are no other shirts. There's one. Because God doesn't have a whole list of options. God has an option. It's his option, Right? So, I mean, right now, there's a bunch of kids in Botswana walking around with Denver Broncos championship shirts on. That's not the case with God. God has always known. He has always known. Before time, he's never thwarted. When this building was being designed and built, I had the really cool opportunity to sit in on some of the building meetings and to meet Jack Bartlow, who is the primary architect of this, this space, this building, the commons as well. And uh, so we would, sit in, uh, we would sit in the conference room and the, and the blueprints would be laid out and he would work through and talk about everything and say, what's going to happen here? He's a, he's a bit of an artist guy, super talented guy, a bit of an artist guy. And so, you know, to hear him talk about light fixtures was really captivating. I never knew anybody could care so much, but he cares a lot and, uh, and walk through. And then we would walk through the space. And if you saw pictures and we were building it, this was just all gutted. In fact, that whole section over there didn't even exist. And, and, and you know, he's walking through and he's looking at it and he's speaking of it as if he can see it already, as if it's all completed. And it just looks like, you know, Blake concrete and just kind of messy over here and mess over there. And, and yeah, he knows about the things that are going to have to happen internally for externally for what we, what we see. And this passage to me feels a little bit like I'm in the, the conference room with the Apostle Paul and he's spreading out the, the blueprint of God's plan. And from eternity past through time to eternity future and putting his finger on one outpouring of divine love after another in this plan that Paul is just saying, look, you need to see it's all so connected. One doesn't happen without the other. It is this unbreakable chain of God's love in your life. And he puts the future in past tense. One author says it this way, if our redemption could be compared to a building project, we could say this, the plans were drawn up in eternity past. The price was paid in advance in full by Christ at his cross. And the foundation was laid in our conversion. 
and now we are under construction, and God builds no follies. It's kind of like, uh, like an old Polaroid camera. Uh, a camera, for those of you who don't know, is something we used to take pictures with before we had cell phones. So it's, it's kind of like an old Polaroid. I think we have a picture of one. Um, I actually, some of you have never seen this technology before, so I, I wish I had one. I, w- I was going to buy one, truthfully, because they're not that expensive to buy. They're only, you know, maybe 30 bucks at the most to buy. But what's incredible is the film for the, that particular camera is like $100 for a pack of films. So if some of you are sitting on some Polaroid film, you got your retirement all wrapped up there. Um, but the way that this works, this camera, if you're, not, if you're totally unfamiliar with it, is there's an eyepiece. You actually have to look through an eyepiece. How inconvenient. And then there is a, um, a button on that side. So you just see the button that's kind of like right there on the side. And what you do is you point at a person and you push that button. And then the camera goes, It's pretty good, right? Yeah. Parents are so proud. Um, and what pops out is this white bordered thing with a bunch of black stuff in the, in the middle. And you don't get to see the, the picture right away. So if kids were using these to like, do selfies today, it would, be, it would cost them a lot of money it would, and a lot of time. But you don't get to, you don't get to see the picture right away. So, then, so what you do is, is you have to wait for it. I know, total drag. Um, and then for whatever reason, you shake it. And I don't know if that's part of like the instruction or if somebody just saw somebody shaking it once and they're like, okay, that'll work. And so they just kind of shake it. I don't know if that works so that's part of it. You shake it. And then slowly, slowly through the blur comes an image. This is what happens when we come to see and know Jesus. We've been captured. We've been captivated. And we're slowly turning into the image that God wants us to be. And for us, it's, it's blurry, you know? And for us, it just feels like a whole lot of shaking. And we can't make it out. But God, who's like the best photographer and film developer of all time, he knows exactly what it's going to look like because it's going to look like his most favorite image ever. A picture of his son, Jesus. It's not like the iPhone, you know, you get your picture taken, you're perfect that instant. It's, it, it really is more like the Polaroid. You say, I believe, but I hold out the picture and there's nothing there. It doesn't seem to be coming through. But in the process of being in community in uh, the church and under the guidance and comfort and leadership of the Holy Spirit of God inside of you and by the work and the power of, of the word of God, what he saw instantly in the moment of our faith starts to begin to take shape in the image of our lives. And it's not as if God is adding grace or bringing more forgiveness. We're full up on all that. But there is a process by which you are becoming what you are instantly the moment you put your faith and trust in God. When you put your trust in in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, it all happened for you fully in that moment. But where it breaks down for us is, is we struggle in our lives and in certain areas. So we give up and we say, okay, God, you must have missed a step somewhere in the process. Or oh, I must have just derailed this thing so bad that it's never going to come up. Or, or we just think, God, I don't, just don't think, I think you forgot about me. I think you forgot what you were in the middle of working on here. But he hasn't. It's fully and it's complete. Well, what does need to change, what needs to happen is, is our thinking needs to change. And from this passage, I see three things Three things we need to renew our mind with these, with these three things of this passage. The first is this. 
that our confidence, our confidence is anchored in the truth that our salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. Our confidence is anchored in the truth that our salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. It is God who begins the process. It is God who is purposeful in this process. We saw this all in verse 28 last week. And it's God who will be successful in this process. So stop depending on on your ability and trusting in your ability and start trusting God's ability and promises. We are eternally secure since our salvation rests on God and not us. It's one thing to believe that God's plan cannot fail. And we would all say that. We would sing about that. We love that. God, your plan never fails. It's a whole other thing to know that you yourself are God's loving, invincible plan. Church, family, followers of Jesus, God says, the gates of hell will not stand against you. My kingdom is unshakable. The second thing um, that we see from this passage is that this passage provokes worship. You know, sadly, those who hold this doctrine, there's a lot, there's a lot of them who become very arrogant. This doctrine should not make us arrogant. It should make us tremble. When we understand that we are saved by a sovereign and undeserved grace of God, we bow in worship and gratitude, and we live lives of celebratory thanksgiving. We live a life of obedience to God's word. It's motivated by God's great love for us. It does not make us arrogant. It does not make us cocky. It's an incredibly humbling doctrine. And finally, we're reminded that God's purpose is for us to become more like Jesus. Our final redemption is called glorification because sin is not just bad, because sin is humiliating. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. It's disgraceful. Jesus did not die just to make us good. He died to make us great and glorious and conform to the image of God's son. His ultimate goal is not for us to become more prosperous, successful, influential, powerful. Those things might happen. But God, ultimately, he wants us to be like Jesus. He wants us to have the priorities of Christ. He wants us to have the heart of Christ. And he wants us to love him like Jesus did. If you want to know what God is is doing... If you look at your life and you say, God, what in the world are you doing? What in the world is going on? If you want to know what God is doing in the tough times, especially in your life, here's your answer. God is working to conform you to the image of his son. And the way that we keep this in front of us, the way that we work through this and keep this in the front of our minds and in our hearts, rooted in our hearts, is we preach this good news. We preach this gospel to ourselves every day. You preach to yourself. You say, well, I've never thought of myself as much of a preacher. Yeah, you have. We get the emails. We know you want to. <laughs> but here's the thing. You are, you are a preacher. You do preach to yourself. It's just what message are you preaching to yourself? And you sit under preaching all the time, too. You don't even realize it. But you sit under messages that are trying to guide you and move you and make you think a certain way and make you act a certain way. What we need to do as followers of Jesus, we need to preach this good news to ourselves. We need to preach this gospel to ourselves. We're going to enter into a time of communion now. The ushers are going to get the elements ready. 
And communion, we do every week because communion um, is a perfect way for us to preach the gospel to ourselves. It comes with the best illustration of all time, a very tangible reminder of how we were even afforded this relationship with Christ because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Um, Every time, you know, Tim asked me to teach, I think I stress him out a little bit because I always feel like, gosh, there's so much I got to say. There's so many things I got to say, and especially in this passage. And so, you know, I was talking to him this week, and he's, he said, look, here's the three things that we're always just going to talk about. We're always going to teach these three things. He's like, we're always going to teach the sovereignty of God, that God is ruler over all. We're always going to teach the gospel of God. We're always going to teach the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us and what he promises to finish and complete in us. And he said, we're always gonna teach the grace of God, the super abundance of God himself, the truth that it's not up to us, it doesn't depend on us, it's not that we deserve anything, it's not that we've earned anything, but it starts, it's it's kept up and it's finished by Jesus. And so when we come to this time in communion, in just a moment, for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, you're going to take the bread, and with that bread, you're going to remember the life and death of Jesus. You remember the body of Jesus Christ that hung on the cross, a a body that was spit on, a body that was mocked, a body that was humiliated, not for his own sin, but for our sin. And, And Christian, you're going to take that cup And that cup reminds us of the the precious blood of Jesus Christ that purchased for us our our freedom, our our life, paid a ransom that we could never pay, paid a penalty that was due us, bought our forgiveness and won our freedom. And when you eat and when you drink, you are preaching the gospel to yourself. You are preaching this good news to yourself and you are believing the truth that the cross proves that God is good. And that his purposes are good. And that his purpose in your life will be completed. Let me pray as the ushers come. God, thank you for, um, thank you for the scripture this morning. God, thank you for the truth of your word. God, thank you for the way that you love us. And God, thank you for the way that you um, never give up on us. God, thank you for the work that you start. You're faithful to complete. God, I pray um, right now for the person who is just wrestling with the truth of who you are. And God, um, our confidence is not in any kind of presentation or persuasive talk or anything like that. God, our confidence is that your arm is not too short to save. God, that you are a faithful and loving pursuer of the lost. And so, God, I pray for that person here today, God, that by your love and by your spirit, God, that you would just break up stony hearts. God, I pray for the person this morning who is um, thinking about somebody they know. Maybe they're here, maybe they're not here, who doesn't yet know you. And God, just the burden that that is on them. God, I pray this morning that they would feel the great joy and freedom that comes in knowing that, God, you are able to do far more, immeasurably more, than we even dare dream, imagine. And, God, that, you, um, that you're faithful 
God, as we take the bread and as we take the cup, God, stir in our hearts um, a remembrance for what you have done for us. And God, would you stir in our hearts, God, just a joyful expectation for what you will complete. It's in your name we pray. Amen.